Hello, everyone. Welcome back to BungaCast. I'm Alex Hokely. I'm here with Phil and George, as usual. Um, they did. I, I don't know why I got that last name and they didn't. But you're all patrons. You guys know who we are by now, surely. So, um, but it's just good to reaffirm one's own identity, um, which actually is sort of like what we're talking about today. Uh, we're talking about liberal nationalism. This is another three articles uh, in which we each bring a piece to discuss uh, around a certain theme. And this one is uh, kind of three different pieces, one from The Guardian, one from Compact, and one from Unheard, uh, discussing or proposing in different ways uh, a return to liberal nationalism or a liberal argument for nationalism. Uh, anyway, how's it going, you guys? Good. How are you? Yeah, it's going well. I'm looking forward to discussing this, these, these three. As a, as a liberal nationalist yourself? Well, I wouldn't say Post-lib- liberal, surely gammon nationalist now. Gammon, yeah, gammon nationalism, gammonism. <laughs> I would accept that. It has actually been really hot as we have to talk about the, the weather. Um, and yeah, that has led to some, some boiled gammons, as we all know. Are you a boiled gammon, George? Mm-mm, not, not, no, not at this point in time. What you've got to do is get your bin, get your bin out, take everything out and fill it up with water and just go sit inside your bin outside. I was sympathetic to the guy being videoed there. He was just yeah. in his bin trying to fucking chill out. And everyone and some guy turns up filming about... him in his car and be like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just in my bin. Fuck off. Yeah, and this is just a great living video. that bin life. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is kind of what makes Britain great. So it is. It's kind of like what makes it crap, but also great at the same time. It is. I, I guess every country has its own like self appreciation of its like crap greatness. Um, so, <laughs> and in, but they they it's in different ways, you know, in different places. Um, anyway, um, again, we're 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 circling around the theme of uh, of patriotism. Um, so let's get actually Indeed. started. Um, my one, um, I'm starting this off, is a piece in The Guardian by Lucy Powell called As We Unite for the Jubilee, Let's Believe Britain's Best Days Are Ahead, Not Behind. Now, just a little bit of background. Uh, Lucy Powell is a British Labour MP. She's at Shadow Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, and interestingly, uh, was elected in a by-election, uh, which is when a sitting MP stands down, uh, on the lowest ever turnout, I think, of of, 20, of 18%, which is kind of remarkable. Um, she is really, truly the people's representative. Um, a couple of other little facts about Lucy Powell, which I wasn't aware of. Um, in 2015, one of the most farcical moments in British politics happened when Ed Miliband, uh, who's leader of the opposition, leader of the Labour Party at the time, <laughs> revealed the Ed Stone. You guys remember this, right? Ed Stone. Um, one of the greatest moments, yeah. It's one of the greatest moments, yeah. Um, where Ed Miliband inscribed his political pledges in a big fucking stone. It was like a really big stone. It was like a Stonehenge kind of stone, maybe a bit smaller and probably um you know synthetic materials but uh anyway (laughs) this was to show of course how serious he was um and funnily enough lucy powell said and she was on air saying this i don't think anyone is suggesting that the fact that he's carved them into stone means that he's absolutely not going to break them or anything like that (laughs) which of course completely undermined the message that these were uh, promises which were set in stone, which could not be broken. Um, anyway, fantastic stuff. Anyway, she, she's also uh, uh, was a campaigner for Britain in Europe, you know, for uh, Britain to vote uh, against leaving the EU, as well as a member of Labour Friends of Israel, which again, I'm just, I'm just highlighting these things because it suggests potentially an ambiguous relationship towards uh, the nation and nationalism. Um, anyway, so uh, in, in this article, 
I'm not going to describe it all for you. Let's just say it's a dog's dinner of, uh, well, yeah, and, and by the way, a dog's dinner is a British idiom for a big, ugly mess, if you're not familiar. It, it's interesting because Powell feels compelled to throw in all her, you know, generally kind of milk toast, liberal mainstream political prejudices into this container of patriotism. So it's a little bit of everything and everything is potentially patriotism and her, uh, primary claim, I guess, is that labor is the home, the true home of patriotism, and not the Tories, who are now irresponsible populists. So labor incorporates and is the home of values like diplomacy, rule of law, decency and integrity, uh, as well as tolerance, openness and generosity, which are core British values and labor, of course, uh, represents them. And of course, the, the concrete embodiment of this is things like RNHS, the Premier League, the BBC. <laughs> um, but and it'd just be easy to laugh at this because it's so lightweight. But I guess what is interesting um, is that there is an attempt to incorporate sort of national populist talking points into sort of Blairite balderdash, you know, just kind of floaty, yeah. airy, third-way nonsense. That was um, a good word, balderdash, Alex. Is, you've not it, entirely like you've not entirely removed yourself from your British your British roots. Great. A great but, phrase, Blairite Balderdash. It's Look great, this, right? This I, I mean, it's almost, it was just almost the, the, worthy of Boris himself. The, the alliteration suggested itself. And, um, you know, you can't, you have to go with alliteration if it's there. Um, anyway, so there is, in, in terms of, uh, you know, national populist talking points, she talks probably the only concrete sort of thing that is proposed there, suggestive of what Labour might do or wants to do, is this buy, make and sell British, effectively reshoring a lot of production, making sure that, uh, you know, we have food and energy security and uh, whatever. And this is obviously uh, propelled by COVID and uh, the Ukraine war. And she puts this explicitly. Um, but I guess anyway, I mean, just to round this out, um, it is obviously a, an attempt to respond to uh, yeah, to I guess the sort of populist moment, um, but it but without really breaking from again the sort of Blairite shell. So I think the perfect example she said, we want to defend and protect our values, but move with the times and keep Britain at the cutting edge of innovation. A little bit of everything, um, but it does it does suggest uh, that at least the kind of yeah the quote unquote liberal elite is trying to turn to patriotism or at least speak in its terms as a way of re-legitimizing their project. Yeah. No, I think that's well <clears throat> that's well put. I mean, the and I think I would agree with your general characterization that the actual content of the article is is fairly flimsy. I don't have anything as good as Blairite Balderdash. I wouldn't even try to match that. But the the argument is essentially that Labour is the party of patriotism because Brits like rules and the Prime Minister broke rules while Keir Starmer is Mr. Rules. And <laughs> the nation yeah. is composed of values, climate investment, and the NHS. That's like, that's those, that's it. That triangulation between those three in the middle of them, bang, that's Britain. Um, yeah, and there's no political content to the nation here. It's all Joe Cox, not Oliver Cromwell sort of thing. So it's, I mean, and this is a very, you know, it's quite, it's limited, but revealingly limited because there are certain things which, you know, she's not obviously not going to attempt to to make, to, to bring into that, uh, nation that labor can represent but um it's all very there's still things which basically everybody agrees with like or all that's her would be presumably her intention is to be like this isn't the nation which is mostly 
pretty good and it's all fine and it's all like nice values about rule of law and and being decent and queuing and talking about the weather and all that sort of shit not even that i mean it's so unspecific not even those kinds of you know truisms about british behavior are even mentioned i guess i mean i don't know if there's much to add really i think your read is right alex it's um on the one hand it's something which could have been published you know, without a few, with a few kind of changes, it's the kind of content could have been published any time since, you know, 1994, basically. But in the context in which it's being published at the moment, it's clearly, like you say, kind of a bid to capture a certain mantle. And so I suppose what it tells us is that they are, and this comes out more also in the other two pieces we're going to discuss, but they are trying to carve out a political identity to respond to an era of post-globalization and they have very you know very slender basis on which to do it i mean they have in fact i mean the labor party could claim more but it's interesting that she doesn't you know so there's no mention say of our union partners there's no mention of any actual um you know kind of achievements historic achievements of the labor party with respect to the british state or expanding british democracy or things that it's done for the british nation so like like um george said you know it's kind of values climate investment our nhs and strikingly i mean apart from a few things about the green kind of green investment overwhelmingly the most important um economic aspect is all the service sector stuff right um, great British cultural and sporting institutions, Channel 4, the Premier League, the FA Cup, Wimbledon, British music. Act- I mean, you know, it's the creative industries of um, kind yeah. of hipster urban cores again. Um, and so that's also kind of, uh, you know, that's also um, particularly striking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess we could actually maybe move on already because I think a lot of what's in this piece is um, thrown into relief or or kind of contextualized once we discuss the other ones. But yeah, go ahead, George. I just wanted to just say that I think that, you know, just to underscore, there are two two political conclusions you can draw from this article to the extent that it's representative of what Labour is going to do. One is that there will be political competition on the terrain of the post-Brexit nation. It is a bit more up for grabs or it's it's now acceptable again for the first time since cool britannia's high waves high watermark whatever um to to kind of say yeah we're we're you know britain's best days are ahead we're, we're going to be talking about what the nation means um and the second is that i think i was trying to think like how would you summarize this view of the nation and it's like the 2012 olympics view of the nation this is that this is yeah, that exactly um yeah. you know that's the time that this was at its its sort of peak and they still can't get beyond that time um these kind of you know um i don't know if she's a quite a blairite but a, a millibandian and an eddian or whatever how it bell end. i mean <laughs> that's pretty good no, I'm it's worth today. yeah it's worth you should uh, you should stand for leader of the Tory party <laughs> it's worth saying the um it's i mean also it's just unavoidable to say is so kind of mind crushingly banal every single kind of you know talking point that you have to get in to kind of um, convey certain kind of message it's so I can't, I mean, it's difficult to describe just how kind of mind-shrinkingly 
insipid it is. It, it, and I think it's, it's, a, like, it's, it's a press release, isn't it, from a like from a cultural institution? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, 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 that's good. Yeah, no, I, and I think what's amazing about it is precisely putting it in today's context, right? That you're that this isn't some blast from the past that you picked up something from the Guardian that was written in like 1998. You know, this is written in 2022. Sorts of serious things going on important things that need responding to um and it's just so yeah so milk toast it's it, like it, it's amazing that you can that you can still kind of get away with that and that's that's what what's amazing about kind of now, the... milk toast has more taste and consistency than this fucking dreck mm, i've never had milky toast i it, it, i think it's a character from a novel that's where the word milk toast comes from actually um i can't remember where but anyway um yeah like and then that that's also applies to uh, her boss, uh, Mr. Rules, uh, Keir Starmer, where it's also kind of fascinating that these figures can rise to the top. I mean, I, I say that because obviously we know that they're all political pygmies and there's no uh, political qualities at all amongst the British political class. And yet the, the kind of seriousness of the moment you'd think would throw up at least I don't know, someone sort of interesting, even if they're like some stupid populist throwing around like, I don't know what, um, kind well, of crazy. the closest you got to that was Johnson, you know, former yeah. editor of The Spectator and all of that, and kind of, you know, with his colourful personal life and had some charisma, you know, sure. kind of, but ultimately, you know, ultimately kind of not really a leader either. Um, I mean, but, you know, it's a whole, this was another piece. I mean, we could have perhaps spoken about this, but there was another piece recently by um, John and Garnish in the Financial Times, where he was saying how part of the political problem of Western states is that they're kind of, you know, essentially the smart people were hoovered up by banks and uh, hedge funds. And so the kind of the third raters all ended up in politics. Um, and I think, I mean, you know, that's a very kind of, it's a simplistic way of putting um, kind of structural transformations in the relationship between the market and the state and the public sphere over the course of the last 40 years. But nonetheless, there's something to it. And so, you know, you end up with these profoundly kind of banal and dim and also just inexperienced and unreflective people uh, who come, you know, kind of uh, come from, you know, mediocre degrees to going into think tanks and NGOs wow. and then end up in politics. That Lucy Powell, uh, you know, went to went to Oxford and, you know, so Did she? maybe that's a kind I was of about quality to say, like, what, what's people the... they spit out. What's the um, like if that if politicians are of such bad quality, then what does this say about people who kind of spend their spare time just sitting around talking <laughs> about politics? Or even worse than that, people who listen to people <laughs> sitting around spending their spare time talking about politics. Well done, George. I mean, the whole thing is you managed to offend both us and our listeners. That's yeah. pretty pretty. But good. Then, like, this isn't this isn't Malcolm's politics bar to take a. To take a, a, a limmy sketch, if only, um, if only, oh, yeah. if only we, we, we don't. Fortunately, we don't dedicate our time to uh, policy and politicians' uh, doings and goings. Anyway, um, let's That's move true. on to the next to the next uh, piece, um, yeah, which is you, George. Uh, George. Yeah, so my piece is Sir Abramari's uh, The Return of Liberal Nationalism, which was in compact on the 12th of May. Um, and the basic thesis that he has is that the more recent opposition between liberalism and nationalism, so kind of the libs 
hating the nationalists hides uh, kind of a deeper co-development, particularly during the 19th century, um, and that liberal elites have in some ways returned to their historic home, um, or this is what he, he asserts, um, by re-embracing nationalism in the wake of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I think this is an interesting an interesting kind of central thesis and that's obviously it's obviously summed up in the title the return of liberal nationalism sees this as this the kind of that historic arc being um being revisited again and i think draws out what is one of perceptively one of the like the the, the absolute key points here which is that this new liberal nationalism i mean if we do agree with him that he is correct um is fundamentally or the political effect that it has is it's anti-working class and he say so right for the Washington Brussels establishment, this new nationalistic tub thumping holds the promise of rechanneling long brewing popular discontent towards a real external enemy, of justifying liberal austerity measures, including curbs on working class energy consumption on nationalistic grounds. So he's clearly saying here there is a you know there's a historical pedigree for this liberal nationalism, and it has concrete political effects which are anti-working class and essentially. To draw things out, he would say, I would imagine it needs to be opposed on on these grounds. So that's there's a lot more to it than that, but wanted to sum it up fairly quickly because I think there's a lot to get into about what he actually says and and argue it out a little bit. So I'm not sure I would quite agree with the characterization exactly, George. Um, with in respect of, I'm not. I think it's a bit more open ended than that. I don't think he has. I mean, he observes the fact that the new um, liberal nationalism could, um, you know, that it could and will likely serve as a justification for, as you say, channeling popular discontent and justifying curbs on working class living standards. Um, but that's not. I mean, it's not the kind of definitive takeaway of the piece. I think it's. Um, it's more kind of reflecting, I mean, he gives a very good account of the um, kind of the 19th century character of liberal nationalism, um, but then also makes, you know, talks about kind of how this, uh, how these different elites might interact. So, you know, on the one hand, you've, and also the kind of um, posi how it's shifted positions. So he notes like East European kind of populists, national populists, such as the Polish Law and Justice Party, which is the ruling party in Poland, has been thrust into being now the champion of European Union expansion, because obviously it's looking to strengthen the position of its Baltic neighbors vis-a-vis -vis Russia and to push towards supporting Ukraine as, you know, again, on its um, eastern border. So... This and in, in in these kinds of um, in this new context, you have them kind of swapping positions in some ways, or the nationalists ending up being kind of stronger, supra or transnationalist than they would have otherwise been. Um, so it's you know he observes kind of interesting shifts and where they might go is um, is left open. I think he overstates the degree of you know the nationalism. I mean at the core in places like the U.S., Britain, and France and Germany, it's still stumping for ukraine it's not stumping for one's own country and that might change in due course as um as indicated by our previous discussion with lucy powell's thing you know the political elites are struggling with ways to articulate national identity in a new form so but at the moment i think he understates or rather overstates the degree of nationalism because it's still kind of vicarious it's supporting ukrainian nationalism more than it's supporting the nation at home yeah, I, I mean, I guess the, the, the main point is that 
war is objectively creating a convergence between the nationalist international, the nationalist movement, and the aims and interests of the transnational liberal institutions they claim to despise. This from the penultimate paragraph. But I think a lot of the a lot of the rest of the piece really just um, bears witness to a sort of jamming of ideological coordinates that's going on at the moment, rather than necessarily saying that this is a fixed pattern, that the liberals are becoming nationalists and the nationalists are becoming liberals or something like that. More just that the war is is scrambling a lot of different coordinates. Um, as a kind of as a broader point and looking at the kind of history that he portrays, he's right, obviously, that liberal liberalism and nationalism rose together. Um, but I think the context is very different. So to say, oh, they're coming back together again because they're sort of a natural partner with one another ignores what the function of nationalism was for liberals and vice versa in the 19th century. And that's what I think is is kind of missing from this piece. In the 19th century, I mean, nationalism was a means of, you know, taking down the empire of claim, making a claim for kind of democratic sovereignty. This was the period of, uh, you know, liberal democratic revolutionary nationalism um, and was also a means of taking down the ancien regime, of taking on uh, the old elite, the aristocracy and so on, on the part of like bourgeois liberals of the new rising bourgeoisie. Today, the bourgeoisie is you know, has won, has vanquished all enemies. Um, and so the role that nationalism could perform for them would be something entirely different, right? I mean, it, it would be the same role that it performed more in the 20th century in terms of binding the population to the elite, right? So it's, it, it, mm -hmm. that would be the, the, the purpose of it. And that, I think, then is... Um, it's quite clear. I mean, he hints, I guess, at this, but it would be the, the purpose now of finding new means of ideological legitimation at a time when regime legitimacy is kind of at an all-time low of saying we're all in this together um, against Russia. I mean, that would be, the, I guess, the form that any kind of return to nationalism in, um, in Western Europe and North America would take. It would be kind of anti-Russian and eventually you know, anti-Chinese. The anti-Russian thing is an easy sell for liberals, right? Um, the China thing, not so much yet, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, so I think the, the starting point that the 21st century resembles the 19th century in many respects, not least because we are witnessing the forceful return to the world stage of liberal nationalism. The one way in which it doesn't, the 21st century doesn't resemble the, the 19th is, you know, basically, as you were sort of saying, Alex, that the, the, the national bourgeoisies of all of the countries are not revolutionary revolutionarily inclined like they're not looking to um take the population with them and form new um you know new sorts of regimes or or anything like that they have no historical forward motion they are instead um exactly as you were saying again phil like they are then so they are therefore not rallying people behind their own flag but rallying people behind the ukrainian flag and i think it's it is you know i think amari really does underplay this a little bit that it is national flags to which people are um being uh, rallied but it isn't the flag of of the home country instead it's the projection of a kind of global form of humanity into the nation of the most vulnerable i.e the ukrainian nation and that's yeah. what appeals to to the liberals 
I think that's right. I mean, and the point which she doesn't really draw out enough is, or one difference which is kind of implicit in the piece, but the liberals and the nationalists tended to overlap quite significantly, you know, in the 19th and 20th centuries, whereas here, precisely, it's more polarized into two different elites. And at the moment, they both converge on Ukraine, um, you know, as George said, kind of precisely because the Ukrainians are vulnerable. And so it's a, another kind of humanitarian mission for, for the liberals. Um, but the fact that they're two separate elites at the moment means that, you know, it's much more of a kind of a ramshackle alliance than it was in earlier periods where liberals were more attached to the idea of, you know, in the Wilsonian period, they're more attached to the idea of uh, the nation state as the political unit rather than supranational organization, transnational integration, what have you, which is the kind of the driving force of, um, of most liberalism today. I mean, yeah. you haven't you haven't seen the Azov Battalion with a you know rainbow pride flag. That's the true synthesis. Um, I'm sure which, it's, it's probably which, no. Coming, I mean, there literally coming. is a photo of some people protesting, like defend Ukraine and like Azov stuff and like <laughs> rainbow flags. Jesus it's fantastic! Christ. What a world. But I mean, just just to, I mean, just to re- return to the I mean, the central idea or the central observation of the article. I remember when when this so it was 12th of May when when this did come out kind of thinking like, oh yeah, he's definitely hit the nail on the head in terms of like identifying this is, there is something to be, um, to be kind of named here and, and like, and investigated, which is these, these uh, two, it's like these two things would never have been seen in the same room, liberalism and nationalism. They've been, it's the same people who have been, you know, extremely consistently in the last 10, 20 how many years um raiding against any sort of nationalism at all and to see those um and so that's the, the liberals you know is the liberals moving towards the nation not the nationalists moving towards liberalism that's what's really quite surprising yeah. and what i think took you know we, we all have our own you know stories about ukrainian flags or you know national anthems or whatever but just to sort of see that that turning on a on a dime it was quite surprising in the kind of the you know the the a few months ago i mean we've now maybe been kind of desensitized to it but you know it, it definitely when this came out i thought yeah he's identified something here that's it's quite striking all right there's actually quite a bit more to discuss on this topic um and we will do that through the discussion of the third piece so over to you phil Yeah, so this is um, a piece in Unheard. It's the lengthiest piece. It's by Aris Rusinos, who's uh, the foreign affairs editor at Unheard, a former war correspondent. Um, and it is called What Putin and Liberals Share. And it was published on 17th of May earlier this year. So it makes it opens up with similar observations to those of the Amari piece, which is to say the sudden fondness or the sudden attachment of liberals for ideas of national independence, defending the Ukrainian nation in opposition to the Russian invasion and how this, um, you know, observing the kind of the strange hypocrisy and um, the lack of cognitive dissonance on the part of all those people who have put Ukrainian flags on their um, social media profiles and 
run up the um, the blue and yellow bunting and what have you. Um, and then kind of expands into a much more um, elaborated discussion of some of the leading theorists, um, social theorists of modernization, um, and historians including Eric Hobsbawm and um, Ernest Kellner. And it makes, I mean, there's a lot in it, and I guess that'll come out in the course of our discussion. Um, but the core move that Aris makes in this is to suggest that there is, um, and I think it's a legitimate one, is to suggest that there is um, a fundamental misreading of the account of nationalism. And it comes, as he says, from all the kind of the essentially, you know, kind of uh, public sphere and the commentariat have absorbed um, a very superficial understanding from their undergraduate education of the very famous book by um, Benedict Anderson, Imagined Communities. And what they misunderstood was when Benedict Anderson, so this was Benedict Anderson's account of how um, large-scale collectivities were formed outside of the context of small-scale rural um, life, and how do you feel attached to you know social collectivities of millions of people whom you've never met, and so it's an imagined connection, which is created by you know kind of uh, the formation of vernacular languages, folk tales, and um, you know all the rest of it, and print and, media. And print media, famously, yeah, or print capitalism, in Benedict Anderson's words, um, and Aris makes the point that the what you know when he said imagined, um, his readers and a whole generation of uh, sociologists took it to mean imaginary, um, and so it segued from something which involved an imaginative leap on the part of um, people who belong to a nation, kind of developed into this, um, developed into. An understanding that it was basically fake and because it was fake uh, and this kind of idea that nations were just fake constructions that this coincided obviously with the rise of um, globalism and transnationalism and this is the liberal account of um, the kind of the late postmodern liberal account of nationhood um, the idea that not that it's imagined but that it's imaginary and this is what he claims is shared with um, by Putin and the liberals which is to say and he's referring here to Putin's essay about the historical origins of the Ukrainian and Russian or the shared origins of the Ukrainian and Russian people where he denies the reality Putin denies the reality of nationhood saying that Ukrainian Ukraine is just kind of this uh, conjuries of different ethnic groups this artificial construct which has no real kind of deep historic roots and therefore um, thereby, you know, um, preemptively legitimating Russian invasion and potentially annexation. And this is what he calls the modernist thesis. And he says that it's saturated. The modernist thesis of the nation um, is saturated with nostalgia for the larger cosmopolitan political units, principally the, um, the old empires of Europe, uh, such as the Ottoman or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and that the last kind of version of this was Eric Hobsbawm's nostalgia for the Soviet Union, where he made a speech in the early 1990s in Budapest, where he said that um, for all of its sins, the Soviet Union nonetheless performed the valuable function of um, uplifting all of these small nations that would otherwise that would otherwise have been unable to stand by themselves. So. That's the, I mean, there's plenty in it, but that's the basic kind of maneuver. Putin and the liberals both think that nations are imaginary rather than imagined. And it, the argument, I guess, hinges on whether or not nations are real.
Yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a provocative way to read that that famous um, <clears throat> uh, and massively overused kind of Andersonian, but not the not the perivial. Per, I don't know the the Benedictian <laughs> Andersonian point um, <laughs> <laughs> about yeah, imagined communities being imaginary. Um, because yeah, I think it's I think there is something fundamentally like that hits the mark here which is that there is a, there is i mean I, I i can speak much less to the point about about putin but about liberals like there is a clearly um an idea that essentially nations are fake like to, to be really crude about it um because you know it's all about like what you know imagine they're kind of like john lennon um might have sung about them you know you can imagine them you can imagine them differently you know it's just like whatever it's whatever you want it to be it's british values or whatever and i think there is something about that there's i.e that neither uh putin nor liberals can stomach the the political content of the nation i.e the kind of democratic decision making within a bounded political community and I think then this needs to be democratic. There, there's nothing about mm. the necessity of it being. Democratic. No, there isn't. Yeah. But I wanted to throw that in there just to just to own the just to trigger the libs. Well, I mean, throwing that in there, I think is is maybe apposite. I mean, I, I took exception to a lot of this, uh, to a lot of Aris's piece. I think you know it's it starts off correct and along the lines of what you guys have said in terms of taking aim at the social constructionists um, for just thinking that the that because the nation has been constructed that it is purely imaginary, um, and then it can be dispensed with through language games or through simply thinking, well, it doesn't exist, right? Um, and I think that is more testament to a liberal disposition against any sort of collectivity and a narcissism that feels that no larger entity can ever represent you. So, and that applies to a political party just as much as it does to a nation. Um, that, you know, this isn't doesn't speak to my true self. Okay, fine, maybe you don't buy into the nation, but you have to buy into some collectivity and, and liberals are resistant to that. I, I think where Aris goes wrong is, I think, through a series of kind of um, misconstruals and straw manning that he does, um, as well as some sort of internal inconsistency in his reading of um, modernist and then kind of social constructivist or postmodernist theories of nationalism. Basically, um, he makes an, he, he basically places the the crimes of uh, you know so, so to speak the crimes of postmodernists at modernists' door, um, and I think that puts him in, in odd places. What's what's inconsistent is that he recognizes that modernism and postmodernism have been unfortunately confused, and so he cites Anthony D. Smith, uh, who is kind of the father of ethno symbolism, as it's called, which was kind of a a, a critique of the modernists. Um, that the the postmodernist reading and its accompanying cultural analysis can always be detached from its modernist moorings. Um, so, so despite recognizing that you know the modernists and 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 postmodernists have been unfortunately confused, um, Iris seems to repeat that confusion. So he says that like postmodern vulgarizations are the logical terminus of the modernist thesis, and for me that's completely wrong. The modernist thesis is the best and arguably only weapon against post against postmodernism. Um, and that includes not just the kind of, um, you know, the, the liberals who think that the nation is purely imaginary, but also, um, you know, reactionaries, whether they're like Twitter Nazis or they're Putin, who also just um, selectively plumb the past to reconstruct the nation today. They also exist in the sort of imaginary. 
Um, and, and it like, so he cites this theory as Anthony Smith, uh, you know, who advanced ethno symbolism, which, it, which that theory places all emphasis on the symbolic and the imaginary. He holds that ethnies, you know, that ethnic groups pre exist the nation and they exist through rites and symbols and whatever, and that this, and that these are sort of trans historical. Um, and that for me really misunderstands what the nation is, which you have to look at it materially. Um, at questions of power and the relationship to the state. To talk about nation and nationalism without referring to the state, to the modern sovereign state, is meaningless. It's just a kind of ethnic group, a community, um, which, are, which are by their nature variegated in the kind of pre-modern world. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of deeply mistaken in trying to um, put the crimes of postmodernism at the door of modernism. Defend, defend modernism. Defend modernity. I think it might be, but he's not modernism and modernity. He's contesting what he styles as a particular account of nationalism as a phenomenon, and he's saying the modernists, the modernist account of nationalism, and he means a specific group of people. He's not making a case against, you know, kind of I don't know, modernist urban. Design. No, no, no. Of course, I, I'm, I'm very aware. He's, he's making a case against Hobsbawm, against Gellner, and and it's a whole other range of uh, theorists who were kind of under the modernist banner or have been. Yeah, and I think one. I mean, you know, and I, I think his, I mean, the nostalgia for or the the snootiness towards nations is very clear. I mean, in in their accounts of it, especially he's right, I mean, about Hobsbawm, the snootiness towards the independence of small East European nations is, um, you know, runs throughout Hobsbawm. And he makes the case, you know, this probably comes from, probably comes from, um, you know, kind of uh, Hobsbawm and Gellner's own experiences having had to flee Eastern Europe during the interwar period. And I guess it's why you hate nationalism as well so much, because you're also no, but, but, a ruthless but, but, cosmopolitan, Alex. Well, I mean, that's a, a, that's that's also true. But I mean, even as a even as a Marxist, you should also, um, you know, there's some just non-historic nations who I mean, why why should every nation exist? That, that's that's a, a, that's utterly nonsense. Um, yeah, but it's not about so I mean, it's not about that. It's about the um, it's not about, you know, whether nations, uh, you know, which nations are entitled to political uh, that's not the issue. It's an account of nationhood and nationalism as a modern phenomenon. Um, and I don't, you know, I think there is, he makes a good point that the shift from imagined to imaginary is a really important one. I, I agree in, with that one. I, I, I entirely agree. I, I, but what, what it ends up serving is the fact, I mean, first of all, Hobsbawm might be snooty. I guess we need to but he, clarify but he was also, because... Hobbs, let me Let me clarify that. Because I mean, Hobsbawm, for example, yes, may have been nostalgic for the kind of multicultural, multinational, multi-ethnic empires for, in which he grew up in, rather than the, than the Wilsonian period and all its destruction, you know, for, for well-founded reasons, because, uh, you know, the period from, uh, <laughs> from 1914 to 1945 was pretty, pretty bad. Uh, in that regard. Um, and a lot of that can be laid at nationalism's foot. Um, but also, you know, Hobsbawm does recognize early nationalism as, uh, you know, he calls it its revolutionary democratic form. And he's, you know, uh, kind of, uh, he's kind of maybe arguably too soft on, uh, on Garibaldi um, and, uh, and Mancini. No, you so. can't be, you, I'm not, you can't be soft on Garibaldi, I think, like, or rather you can be soft on Garibaldi. That's legitimate is what I mean. But, I'm just still disappointed that you didn't rise to my anti-Semitic jibe. I'm, no, I'm, 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 I'm part of the, you know, global Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy and, and proud. So, um, uh, but I think, any, you know, anyway. ultimately, ultimately, Iris is grasping at an attempt to kind of 
hold on to a good nationalism, right? Rather than understanding it as a contradictory thing. So, you know, it's- But it's you a, can't, I mean, but what do you expect? Nations and nationalism are contradictory parts of capitalist development. And there's an integrative and yeah, a disintegrative saying, aspect, so he's not, so a he's democratic not a and a anti-democratic. Well- He's not a Marxist, that is true. You, you know, yeah, so like he's Irish Greek. So he comes from two small <laughs> nations and so is understandably attached to, you know, the kind of uh, reality of uh, independent, you know, and the meaningfulness of independence for small, for small nations. I mean, you know, what do you expect? Okay, but then he should also no, be, then he no should small... also be just as just as skeptical of, of uh, large country nationalism, you know, for that same reason, which can so easily trample, trample no, no small nations, only small nationalisms. But I what I actually wanted to, to draw out here is I'm not sure what the, like, what the positive kind of so if, if you assume that this is a kind of a somewhat post-liberal approach and the same thing you could say with the Amari piece, um, so compact and, and uh, unheard, maybe maybe styled by others, perhaps more than consistently themselves as the kind of post-liberal um, publications, um, the, the kind of conclusion that Aris draws that it is doubtful that there is any alternative to the nation state. It's like that's not exactly a ringing kind of political endorsement necessarily. And, and so I guess what my question was is like, is there, can you take from these two articles a kind of a post-liberal approach to nationalism? Clearly there's a, a pointing out of the of the hypocrisy or the contradictions of liberal nationalism, but is there a post-liberal nationalism, which is kind of distinct from that liberal nationalism that's being criticized perhaps in different ways by the two by the two well, pieces. Well, it's a good point, George, and I don't think there really is. I mean, apart from Aris's kind of implicit, more or less implicit claim that nations are real, um, that they're meaningful things, they're not just kind of fake things, um, which is, again, kind of a, and a swipe at kind of all the liberals um, and so, you know, who's theorists are social constructivists and postmodernists. Um, there isn't really any kind of account of what the difference might be. I suppose it's just kind of tacitly contrasted. I mean, I guess the, the point is that, that that there is a certain hollowness to it. I mean, precisely because of globalization and that the nation was sustained by capitalist elites need for the national container, um, both in terms of um, adhering the working class to to the ruling class, as well as, uh, as as well as using the nation state, more emphasis on the state as a as a vehicle for for capitalist development, and yeah. it doesn't need that with with global finance. And so, as a yeah. as a consequence, the nation withers. And so, it, 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 the nation is a bit anachronistic. It you know we yeah. can say that it's real and it's meaningful, fine, and it's important. And as we would argue, it's, it's it, that the nation state is essential as a container for democracy. You know, in, at least in, in in today's historic point. Um, but that doesn't mean that it, it will. It's some no, sort I mean, of uh, necessary entity for all of history. I think that's right. I mean, I think in the waxing and the waning. So even if you can accuse the kind of the liberals and the postmodernists of overreaching in their account, the withering away, as you say, of the nation was a genuine phenomenon. And perhaps this is what is less convincing about the about the Amari and Rusinos kind of claims is that they don't really account for the decline of the nation beyond a genuine decline, not just a kind of a, you know, a kind of a uh, sub, you know. Yeah, because um, it's like liberal sabotage otherwise, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, their claim is liberal sabotage rather than that it was a genuine phenomenon of political restructuring and with it kind of, um, you know, cultural reconfiguration and also a people's attachments kind of uh, were pulled in different directions. And 
And as we know, like, and this is a point that Aris makes, actually, which he maybe, you know, he doesn't develop as much as he could. But, you know, the people who formed the nation was the PMC. Right. I mean, yeah. they weren't called that, but it was school teachers and headmasters and kind of civil servants and shopkeepers and writers. They were the ones who, you know, kind of, um, you know, converted folktales into national myths and taught the school kids about what their ancient battles were that they should feel kind of, um, you know, uh, sentimental about and what have you. And these are the same people today, obviously, who have no attachment to the nation at all, except the Ukrainian nation. Yeah. Um, which is why they're uh, they're they're at the vanguard, the PMC, uh, the historical vanguard. Um, I, I wanted to raise one other thing, which is, you know, kind of slightly flows on from this, because uh, to take up Amari's claim about the fact that we are kind of a bit like in the 19th century, um, and you can draw various ways in which that that may may or may not be the case. But the collapse of lots of 20th century uh, institutions makes that idea appealing. I've, I've seen elsewhere some people making the argument that we're to some extent in a sort of not quite 1913 scenario, but a, a, at a similar collapse of a liberal order. Um, and it's worth considering whether reignited great power rivalries and which uh, is part of the consequence of American decline and China's rise and so on, uh, whether that might not be a material basis to fuel new uh, national antagonisms and new nationalisms. Um, obviously, we're in a very different world to the politics of you know the 1900s, the 1910s. Um, well, but it already I think is. I mean, if Ukraine is the battlefield, you know, if Russia is kind of effectively... A dependent increasingly going to become a kind of an ally or de political dependency of a rising china more dependent on china you know then ukraine is perhaps already that battlefield well indeed and, then, and but that would mean that we should be particularly wary i think of attempts to rekindle nationalism even if it seems to be under the guise of or or at least be a partner to a rekindling of democracy um i think the emphasis has to be on democracy and not on any kind of attempt to rekindle patriotism or national feeling and belonging, right? Because um, I think that that then is uh, then you're going down a dangerous road in furthering the bases for uh, you know nationalist competition and war. Well, I mean, but I the point is, we've got dangerous. war already, right? Yeah, we got the point is we have war as a result of like supranationalist sure. uh, humanitarian yeah. interventions and you know NATO expansion is but what it's got all us been the war in but it's Ukraine all been hyper real war. But it's all been hyper real war up till now, yeah, right? I'm sure and it's so... pretty real. It feels pretty real in Kiev and Mogadishu but and that's, Tripoli. These are and... faraway places about which we know little. Uh, the, no, I know. I mean, but I, my I'm point being, is I'm... no, I understand what you're saying, Alex. But my point is that you know, like we've had you know war we've had war without in the conditions of um suppressed nationhood and in fact that was indeed how they you know that was the promise that we will get peace if we suppress nationhood by which they mean what they yeah. really meant was suppress mass democracy and so we've tried it out and you know you can go ask how it worked out in places like baghdad and uh, libya so i mean you know it doesn't seem to me that that you know that there is kind of um that an argument against that it constitutes an argument against mass that you know the bringing the masses back into politics risks war it doesn't seem to me to hold given the era that we've been through but of course i'm not arguing for for the masses not to be brought into politics you know obviously not um the point is that it if, means if, the, if, if the only way the nation state but not nationalism and i think you know have to be careful well, to distinguish it depends that, right? what you mean by nationalism right so obviously you know you don't want i mean 
you you not you don't want to return to a world of um you know squabbling over kind of petty territorial adjustments and what have you that would be you know truly warped and um and hideous and who knows perhaps it is our future but nationalism is the kind of, if you mean if you by that you mean like um you know kind of uh sociological a sociological phenomenon which is to say orientation towards particular set of common political institutions around which people compete or feel that they um, you know kind of have can have a meaningful competition political competition and in which they feel that they have some measure of control and input no i mean i well i'm i'm, I'm absolutely you're not going to get transnational yeah. you're not going to get transnational fine. democracy right you know no of course of course but i am and i'm i'm proletarian with... internationalism I'm... either I'm I'm fine with uh, allegiance to you know a common set of institutions and a belief that that the site of democracy is within certain boundaries um, in in every kind of different nation state. But uh, I guess the 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 point about nationalism is that nationalism is a movement for the achievement of one's own state in the great powers that has already been achieved. So where does that nationalism so, yeah. go? And it's all directed outwards in an aggressive fashion. So maybe we have like three distinct positions on the podcast. Like Phil is the nationalist, Alex, you're the transnationalist, and then I can be the internationalist. No, I refuse. I refuse that fucking designation. I'm, but if I mean, you're a transnationalist, I'm a cis nationalist. <laughs> oh, good grief! That was actually pretty good. That was actually a good George's. Alex didn't come from Alex George. Is, Alex is for his, on his standards uh, on fire today. So, indeed yeah okay um, um we, we, unless anybody has any other points uh i think we can leave this here uh i've enjoyed no, this. i think this i think um, um i think yeah so it, it's raising i mean liberal nationalism what this means and how this is going to develop i think it's it's it was unexpected that this came back and it's it's back now so got to deal with got to deal with it got to indeed indeed to it's something to grapple with and so yeah on. No, and we do keep circling around to 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 this. So, um, yeah, maybe we should uh, consider doing a little bit more deliberately on this. Um, maybe I'll I'll just give a long lecture on why Gellner and Hobsbawm and the modernists were right. Um, they're all shaking their head. No, we won't do that. Anyway, um, that's that could be patrons only, or that could be <laughs> it's special it own tier. Alex yeah. only. Yeah, Alex <laughs> Alex tier. Um, all right. Um, we will leave it here. We'll be back again next week, as always. I think we, uh, a lot of, well, these two guys are away traveling in a lot of August, so I don't think we're going to be doing a lot of new recording, but there will be episodes coming out, uh, stuff being pre-recorded. So um, even though, uh, you know, we'll be on holiday, you don't have to be. You can still keep listening to Bunga. Okay, <laughs> catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>